Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Researchers at the University of Cambridge have conducted the largest ever study of the genetics of our brain structure. So, why? Why should we care about the size or shape of our brains? Well, uh, Professor Richard Bethlehem, who specialises in brain imaging, uh, genomics and uh, computational neuroscience, joins me now from the project. Richard, welcome. Um, before we start, I'm going to ask you a really elementary question, because recently I found out that the eye is part of the brain. What, 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 when we talk about the brain, what are we talking about? Are we talking about that lumpy bit or, or are we talking about the spinal cord in our eyes and whatever else is stuck to it? First of all, thank you for having me in today. <laughs> Um, that's an excellent question, and probably the answer depends a little bit on who you talk to. Um, since you're talking to me today, I would say we're we're mostly talking about that lumpy sort of bit of, of gray tissue that's like inside your skull. We probably wouldn't count the eyes towards that in the, in this instance, um, and the spinal cord probably also not, even though it's obviously all attached to each other, and uh, you can't you can hardly really study them in isolation. Right, and, and of course. Um, through um, uh, hundreds of thousands of years, the the shape and position and size of our brain has changed enormously. Uh, and of course, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it in the way your project frames it. But of course, this is hugely influenced by our genetics. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I think this, this this project took a very sort of holistic approach to basically making very few assumptions about um, uh, about what to expect, essentially. Um, and, and it basically originated from, I would say, two sort of different viewpoints. So on the one hand, there was sort of my my, my take on this coming from a background of, of brain imaging and really trying to study the brain through these these fancy uh, brain scanners that we have in hospitals and in research settings. And for me, the take on this was really trying to figure out what it is that we're actually measuring with these scans. So we can take very fancy 3D pictures of a brain um, and look at a whole bunch of different different properties that we can measure in those scans. But it's very tricky to understand what it actually means from a from a sort of biological perspective. Like what are the what's the biology that really drives whether someone has a big brain or a small brain, um, whether some specific areas in the brain are bigger or smaller or thicker or thinner. Um, and so for me that was very much the the way I went into this project to sort of try and figure out a way we can actually pinpoint that a little bit. Um, and like you say, some of some of that is is perhaps driven by sort of evolution of the brain, how these how these changes happened. I mean, you know, different parts of the brain have have sort of undergone um, like like different restructuring perhaps over the course of evolution. Mm. Um, but for this specific project, I think we're, we're just mainly focused on trying to understand the the sort of variability that we have across the population uh, within this at the moment. So across all these different individuals, everyone will have a slightly different brain and really trying to understand that variation, that heterogeneity and that complexity was was very key in this project. What sort of variability do you see? Because when you think of the human body, there are, are, are obviously parts um, which certainly to the naked eye don't seem that variable, like uh, fingernails, for example. Most people's fingernails look pretty much the same, but then you have noses, which are, can be wildly different depending on the person. When we look at 30,000 brains or how many brains you looked at there, are there like a wide range of shapes that a brain is or do, do they all look pretty much identical? That's again a very good question. I would say like sort of perhaps to the untrained eye, they might look extremely similar. So we all have, we all have, 
gray matter, we all have white matter, and it, and it really does look gray if you, if you see it live, not like nicely colored like you might see in textbooks. Um, we all have like sort of different, uh, different types of fluids in the brain as well. And I would say, broadly speaking, probably 80-90% of that is, is pretty similar across individuals, but it's exactly in that sort of margin of 10-20% where there's a little bit of variation in these properties that we think at least like based on, on this type of research and like obviously a wide body of research that, uh, that is really sort of underpinning uh, individual variation and lots of other things and behavior and cognition, et cetera. You said small variabilities, you're not like uh, yeah. you, uh, to the naked eye from say a few meters away, you would never be able to tell these differences. Is that right? Or do some people's brains literally have uh, flaps I mean, that, you- that aren't found on other people's? No, I mean that's I think that's rare. We see things where where there are gross abnormalities. They tend to be associated with pathology. some kind of like pathology or a condition. Right. Um, the one thing that we do see is we obviously see like variation in size of the brain, and that's something that obviously like differs quite a lot as we uh, as we grow up because we 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 think that just just as a sort of um, illustration, like the brain sort of increases in size. Um, like almost fivefold just in the first couple of years in life. Um, so there is a massive amounts of variation in size, but that's mostly tied to age, I would say. And then there is a bit of variation within that, within a given age as well. Right. And, and, and again, we would associate much smaller brains with some sort of um, abnormality or pathology, right? Is that, is that the case that if someone has a particularly small brain, there's usually some sort of genetic. I mean, do, would you call that a genetic? Is that a genetic trait that is an abnormal trait, or um, uh, would you would it be a disease um, associated yeah, trait? Not not necessarily. So there is obviously like like normal variation in the population in terms of like how how big or small someone's brain is, and it's. I, I, we tend to say that unless it's like also giving some sort of cognitive or behavioral problems, it's um, like the threshold for like assigning it a, a condition might be might be a bit opaque. Right. Um, what we did do, for example, in this study is we focused specifically on 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 that, like a little bit further down our analysis. Um, we looked at these two conditions called micro and macrocephaly, which is essentially like having a bigger or a smaller brain right. uh, in quite an extreme way. So you're you're basically talking about individuals that are in the sort of, if you think about it in terms of a growth chart, they're in the sort of like the top the top one or the lowest one percent of the population. Okay. Um, one of the things we actually find is that in some of the, the genes that we analyze, genes that we find that are associated with like normal variation in having a, having a bigger or a smaller brain, that there's a sort of what we call an enrichment um, in these clinical conditions. So the same genes that sort of drive this, this very typical normal variation that we see across individuals is also associated with those individuals where it goes to this like very extreme and potentially uh, um, clinical sample. So I think conceptually you could say that on a, on, a, on a spectrum or on a dimension, they just happen to be at the very extreme end of it. Do we have good research to suggest that um, larger brain has anything to do with cognitive ability or intelligence? I mean, this is a very contentious field. Um, I think there have always been studies to show um, some associations with like bigger or smaller brains having, having been associated with, for example, IQ tests or things like that. I don't think there is what we call a linear association between the two saying a bigger brain means you're smarter. Mm. Um, and probably the best way to illustrate that is that men tend to have bigger brains than women do, even though they don't necessarily score higher on average on intelligence tests. So I think once you start controlling for those kinds of factors, such as um, sex or, or perhaps even sort of background, 
then a lot of these relationships tend to disappear a little bit. Right. Um, and I think the thinking nowadays is that it's not so much about you know the size of the brain, but it's like there's probably more intricate properties in how the brain is actually organized or how like different parts of the brain is actually you know coordinate their function together that is more related to things like uh, like intelligence or cognitive aptitude. I remember hearing once that our brains um, grew so big that they had to um, change their shape and sort of fold in on themselves. Um, and, and I presume, uh, if if that's even remotely true, this is to do. Um, this is something that we see in the genes as well, right? The genes are uh, responsible in the development for the folding of the brain. Is that right? Can you talk yeah. to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, there. Uh, I would say. The, the sort of evolutionary angle to that is not something I have a ton of expertise in, but I do know that there is a lot of literature showing like in different species, how that folding has sort of changed uh, over the course of evolution. Right. And it is something that we see in in, um, in human uh, um, brain imaging. So we have been part of studies where they, they started making these brain scans from as early as sort of 15, 16 weeks uh, of fetal development. So like um, prenatally. And there you can see the brain is actually quite smooth because it's it's still growing and it, there's still some space for it to grow. But as the brain sort of starts expanding quicker, essentially, than, than the skull is expanding, you start to sort of see it like fold in on itself a little bit. <laughs> That's mad. Um, and I, yeah, it is, it's absolutely insane. I think the best way, I think, maybe to illustrate it is this idea of a, of, a, of a paper sheet that you can have it sort of, you can have it as a flat sheet, but you can also kind of crop it up into a little bowl. And make it much smaller and fit the same sort of size of sheet into a smaller space and that's a little bit what is happening to the sort of this outer layer of the brain where it, it's kind of folds in on itself and you get these you get these curves and what we call sort of gyri and sulci forming in the brain and there's a lot of individual variability in terms of like how that folds in on itself and there's a few sort of key marker points in the brain where everyone will have folds here or there, but there's quite a lot of individual variation around that. Right. And, and then presumably that is, again, driven by gene expression. Yeah. So one of the things we, we see in this in this study that um, we're talking a little bit about today is that um, we've measured some of these properties. So we measured properties in what we call the, the, the gray matter, which is this, this tissue type that develops relatively early. Um, and that includes things like these 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 sort of properties of folding um, and these gyri and these sulci, as we call them. And we find those are relatively highly heritable. So they have heritabilities in the sort of 30, 40 percent, which, which suggests that just common variation in in someone's genetic profile has about a 30 to 40 percent like predictive probability of saying like how those folds will occur. Mm. Um, that also leaves, obviously, that sort of by extension leaves a lot open for other factors to kind of come in and and determine like how that um, variation in the population occurs essentially. But we know a, a large proportion of it is um, is driven, is sort of predisposed by uh, by genetic makeup. Okay. Uh, apart from uh, the sort of enjoyable nerdiness of you know looking at these brains and trying to figure out how they fold together, the sort of engineering porn look at it. H- how do we benefit from this sort of research? What does understanding how our brains fold and what genes drive that folding and what size they get why is that useful from a medical or a scientific point of view sure i mean i think i think there's two elements to that so from a maybe a sort of more medicalized point of view it's it's extremely useful to understand you know what is the what is the healthy process by which our brain develops and by which our, our brain kind of forms as we grow up um, because it kind of helps us to, to figure out what could go wrong during that process or if something goes wrong, where to pinpoint that. Mm. If you think about, you know, if you're trying to fix you know, a piece of machinery, if you don't know what 
the machine is supposed to look like it's kind of hard to spot like where something could break or where something has broken if you don't know what the what the normal function of it is yeah. so to, to a large extent just understanding the, the the typical biological processes that drive these um will give us a frame of reference to try and understand like where these things might go wrong another side of that is that a lot of the sort of clinical conditions that we might be looking at aren't necessarily conditions where something has completely broken down or has gone completely wrong, but they're simply extremes of sort of normal variation in a way. And I think even for that, you need to understand what the dimension or the scope is of normal variation for it to for it to be pinpointed towards that. From a scientific perspective, I think a lot of the, at least one of the things we're very excited about about this research is that We've conducted all these genetic association analyses and we've released this openly so that other people can come in and they can kind of look at these genetic makeups and use analysis to see, well, is the genetic makeup of this specific brain property, for example, is it associated with what I know about the genetics in my clinical condition? And really to sort of try and put those two things together to try and figure out, you know, what are the potential processes or what are the potential genes that might be associated with my clinical condition? in the hope of spotting early things going wrong. Well, really um, interesting work. Richard Bethlehem from the Autism Research Centre at the University of Cambridge. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.